Hello and welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Fairfield Inn and Suites, Waco North. This episode, part four in our Nine for Title Nine series, featuring Texas A&M Trailblazer Vicky Brown Sobecki. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Fairfield NN Suites, Waco North. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX with nine episodes featuring women who played an important role in Texas sports history. This episode, we chat with Texas A&M swimmer Vicki Brown-Sebecki, who not only was an All-American swimmer and one of the first women to gain an athletic scholarship at Texas A&M, she was also the first woman to serve on the board of the Texas A&M Letterman's Association and later was the first woman to serve as the president of the Letterman's Association. The Southeastern Conference recognized two women from each of its member schools as SEC Trailblazers during the 2022 SEC Women's Basketball Tournament in honor of the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Vicki Brown-Sebecki was named as one of the Texas A&M Trailblazers, as well as Brenda Goldsmith-Hocott, who we will have on our next episode. Vicki Brown-Sebecki grew up in Houston. She said she comes from a long line of trailblazers, including her parents, who moved to Houston in 1952, when the population was still only 450,000. Vicki, thank you so much for being with us. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. First, to chat about your background, as a child, you weren't really into sports at first. I was not an athlete from the very beginning. And I was very smart. I would rather be in my books. And it really took a lot for my parents to get me outside. Swimming was not on the agenda. But sidewalk skateboard back in the 60s, I received one of the first ones in my neighborhood. And we used to race. And... Right after Christmas, we were racing, and I got hit. I got broadsided by somebody, not intentionally, just hit. And I had a serious break in my leg. So serious. I was in a cast for a year because where it broke was at the growth center, and I was nine years old, and they wanted to make sure that my leg would grow again. Well, once you get out of a cast, you have to do physical therapy, but that's expensive back at that time. And my parents decided to take me to the community pool at the Meyerland Club. That was part of my neighborhood. And my dad got me in the pool. My mom stood on the side and made sure that I would kick and rehab my leg for about a year. Now they call it aqua classes where you walk the pool and you do exercises. But this was back when I was nine years old in order to walk again. And... So as I progressed, my parents saw the swimming team in the Marlin Club because there was two pools, and my mom says, she's swimming as good as they are. So she went and talked to the coach, and I was horrified because, I, you know, I was like, no, I'm not an athlete. I don't want muscles. <laughs> um, it was because of an injury that I got involved in swimming, and 
my first swimming meet, I was not allowed to push off the wall, you know, off the blocks because of the injury that I had and the doctors were concerned. They didn't want it to be re-injured at any point. But eventually I was strong enough where I could, and I swam on the relay, and our team took first place against the team called the Dad's Club YMCA that had been dominating all the relays and all the swimming meets that summer. And that was my one and only victory lap, if you would say. <laughs> and from that point on, I knew I, would, I was good at something. I was, I was really good. So it wasn't something where I was three years old and I was in the pool and you hear all these wonderful stories about athletes. I was 10, and that was old and swimming, if you hadn't learned your strokes. A late yet auspicious start in swimming, and you moved up the ranks quite quickly. That swimming program catapulted me into Junior Olympics and a coach by the name of Pat Patterson, you want to remember that name, from the University of Texas. And then on to national level and circuit swimming. And, of course, from that point, people started to notice. And I was receiving scholarships not only academically my junior year at Bel Air High School, but I was actually receiving in the mail from Arizona, uh, the state of Arizona, the state of Florida, state of California, schools that knew Obviously, something was going to happen within collegiate athletics. And, and I think one of the things is I didn't know about Title IX other than education. And as we've spoken before, Title IX is a federal civil rights law in the United States that was passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972. And it's contrary to popular belief that the creation of Title IX had nothing to do with sports is that women's sports were not considered a relevant issue within the educational organizations at the time. However, there were those visionaries that actually decided that it would be to the benefit of their universities in recruiting not only academics, but to have females participating in organized sports. So it was really academics that brought me to the forefront of Texas A&M University. So you were an outstanding student and still swimming at a national level and traveling quite a bit while you were in high school. I had swum across the country at different locations, um, not only on campus, but at that time it's called the Southwest Conference. So I had been to SMU, TCU, University of Texas, and because of UIL for high school swimming in um, Waco, I swam in the Waco Invitational every year to qualify for Texas age group swimming. That was like the end of the year, end of the summer swimming meet, then qualifies you for nationals or uh, what they call junior Olympics or junior nationals. So Waco had the best pool and facilities um, at that time. Hot, very hot in the summer, but... um, They had a a great invitational to allow swimmers to get qualified for whatever they hadn't qualified for in swimming during the year. So you got exposure, not only from the high school side, but also from what you would call AAU. You were swimming all over and making a name for yourself. You had some offers from colleges outside of Texas. How did you wind up at Texas A&M? Title IX, in my mind, was all academic. So... I told my parents, 
I'm going to go ahead and visit everybody and, and see what they have to offer. But there's also the part of me that said, why do I need to leave Texas? Why, why do I need to go to Arizona, Florida, or California to compete? And so they said, because that's where the scholarships are. That's where they're going to promote swimming programs. But Pat Patterson, who was the head coach at the University of Texas, then approached me, but he said he could not give me any kind of scholarships because they were not budgeted. And he, he really wanted me to come to the University of Texas. And, uh, you know, I went to the orientation, but Texas A&M was going to be offering me on the academic side, and I was hopeful that they would come along with scholarship for the athletic side so I could be a student athlete. And later on, that actually happened. Emery Ballard, who created the wishbone, the three running backs, and he was noted for that. But what he should be noted for is he went to the leadership at Texas A&M University and said, I want to build a women's athletic program and have these varsity sports, and he listed them off. It was, I believe, gymnastics, basketball, softball, swimming, track and field, and volleyball. And I, I might be missing one other. With that being said, he was the one that went to the athletic council, changed whatever bylaws need to be taken care of, and hired Kay Dawn as the assistant athletic director, which oversaw all the women's programs, and she coached basketball. Just as he coached football as head football coach, he was the athletic director. By the time they put everything in place, and I came into A&M, and decided that this is where I was going to get my higher education in the fall of 74, that all had changed where varsity sports for women were in place. It's interesting that you didn't go to Texas despite having a history with their head coach, Pat Patterson. You know, at the time, again, at the time, Gregory Jim at the University of Texas and Pinky Downs Auditorium at Texas A&M University were exactly the same. They were old, and of course you know they condemned the pool, Pinky Downs Auditorium, after I left my senior year. They said, you cannot compete in this facility. So we had that beautiful 50-meter pool that was built in 69 with the platforms and the springboard diving. I mean, it was a beautiful facility that went from 69 when it was built until they redid Cobb Field and they made that Pickard's Pass. You know, that's where the pool was. So we could swim and we could do things outside. But Gregory Jim, I had competed at the UIL. That's where... All of the state championships for swimming were held. And it was just as bad. They were not what I was accustomed to, nor were most swimmers. They were really antiquated and needed to go. And Pat Patterson told me, we're going to build this great facility indoor. And, of course, it became the Jamail Swim Center. But at that time, hey, you're not offering me a scholarship at any level, academic or athletic at Texas. Well, that'll come. That'll come. But A&M what? They already were on board, already way ahead of the curve for the Southwest Conference. And you talked about the facilities that Texas and Texas A&M had at the time. And you had already gotten used to better facilities swimming at a national level before you got to college. As a freshman, I was 17 years old. So there was a lot of things that I had experienced 
with national and international and Olympic coaches. I was very fortunate to have great coaches. And I had a very elite program. And when I arrived at A&M at Pinky Downs Auditorium, that was quite a shock as far as the facilities. You know, one, one outlet for a hairdryer for 13 women swimmers. And if you recall back in the 70s, everybody's hair was long. So it was difficult to find a place to get dry after morning practice or afternoon practice. The club, meaning the water polo club, which it still is, the women and men's swim teams were automatically on the water polo program. So we played water polo to condition, and we would run bleachers in Kyle Field. We would run to the swine farm. And to give people perspective, the Swine Farm is where now the location of the George Bush Library and School of Public Policy is located on that property. So it's about six miles, and then we'd run back, and then we would get in the water and start to swim. With Title IX, however, change was on the horizon. Did you realize the magnitude of what was happening at the time? There wasn't a whole lot of time to talk about the political side and how things were going. We just knew we were the first. And if you recall, at that same time, that fall, women were now allowed to be in the Corps of Cadets. And, of course, that was a huge change that same fall. So you had women's athletics, you had women in the Corps, and so all those seniors of class of 75 were like, what happened? There was a lot of changes, and that even was for the swimming team program. Equipment, our parents supplied equipment, A&M supplied what they could or the coaches could provide. Our warm-ups were the hand-me-downs from the football team. They had big, huge parkas that they got new ones for each year. So the women's swimming team was glad to have those parkas. Of course, we refused the pants. We said, you can keep the pants. And we just took the parkas to stay warm during our competitions during that year. But the main thing was, is that was the shift um, within the Southwest Conference, A&M being the first and Coach Emery Ballard being the one that catapulted the athletic department to realize that Title IX was more than the education side. But you don't realize that you're, you're starting something, you just have the desire. I had the desire. I wanted just to compete. I wanted to compete in school and do my very best. I wanted to compete in swimming, but never did at 17 go, oh, I'm breaking barriers or I'm a trailblazer. (laughs) That was not at all the thought process. We just wanted to compete and do well for Texas A&M University. Still, it was people like you and golfer Brenda Goldsmith-Holcott who will be on this series next week. Athletes such as you and her helped bring Texas A&M and all of women's athletics to the heights that they are at today. You know, despite the equipment being not available, despite the facilities not being what they could have been, I don't think they would be where they are now had we not just said, we'll do well in whatever you give us, and we will compete at an elite level with whatever. And I think we talked about this, Michael, was when the water polo teams, men's and women's teams, needed 
especially the women's program for swimming. Men's had already a budget line item, but there wasn't one for us to compete at a national level. We cleaned Kyle Field after football games. That went on for years, and thank goodness I graduated before the third deck was built. But after the games, that is what we did to get our traveling funds. When we return, we'll hear more from Vicki Brown-Sebecki about the early days of women's athletics at Texas A&M University. On our Nine for Title IX series, celebrating 50 years of Title IX on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Fairfield Inn & Suites, Waco North. Hi, this is Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman, and I listen to the Texas Hall of Fame podcast. And if you're not listening to it, you're missing out. When you come to Waco, be sure to stay at the Fairfield Inn & Suites Waco North, located just a short distance from the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You'll start your day off with a delicious complimentary breakfast, and you'll also enjoy the Fairfield Inn & Suites free Wi-Fi, fitness center, and pool. Next time you bring your team to Waco, make the Fairfield Inn & Suites Waco North your home base on the road. Welcome back to our 9 for Title IX series featuring Texas A&M trailblazer Vicki Brown-Sebecki on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Presented by the Fairfield Inn & Suites, Waco North. Don't forget to follow the Texas Sports Hall of Fame on its social media channels. On Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. To stay up to date with all of the great things happening at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Now, we've talked about this at other points in this series, like with Susie Snyder Eppers in episode two. The NCAA was not overseeing women's athletics at that time. We weren't the NCAA. We were AIAW, American Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. And then for the state of Texas, they just put the letter T in front of it. So when we became champions... Uh, our first women's swimming team were the TAIAW champions as the first women's swimming program to be first. They didn't call us first in the Southwest Conference because we weren't part of that. It wasn't until 1980 that the NCAA said, wait a minute, we, we, we're all, and that's part of that Title IX, you all should be under the umbrella of the NCAA. So the records that were set back when they started AIAW for all of the women's athletics programs. Those records and those All-American status were under that umbrella. But there was still the same criteria that the NCAA required for you to be an All-American. And so that year and our team, I'm pretty sure there were four, five, or six All-Americans that were recognized that first year, I can tell you that when we received word that we had more All-Americans on the women's swimming team than we did on the football team 
that made headlines. Yeah, I bet. Wow, and that was that was your freshman year in 74? Yeah. 74, 75. Wow, that is amazing. Who was the coach at the time? The coach at that time was Dennis Fosdick, who has passed away. And those assistant coaches, one of them just did a great job in assisting. Because as you know, when you're competing and you want to go on for your master's, you have, still have to have a job. So a lot of these gentlemen were going to vet school or they were getting their master's in another industry. But they helped us quite a bit. And Coach Fosdick was a great water polo coach. We did well as a new fledgling program. We traveled to Arizona and California. Our water polo team was really good because we were well-conditioned swimmers. And it also taught me teamwork. I was captain and my co-captain was Deborah Starr. We learned leadership. Team sports teach you how to get along with people that you may not necessarily agree with or you have different backgrounds and how you train. But it was great when we got ready for our competitions that everybody was like, hey, and, and we would ask each other, are you eligible? Are you carrying 12 hours? And are you not on scholastic probation? We checked ourselves as women on the team. Everybody made sure we were eligible so there would be no surprises when it came time to compete at an elite level. We wanted to be sure we were representing Texas A&M University, not only academically, but on the sports side. Because we were under scrutiny. We're, we were the first. And you talked about leadership a little bit, and you were a letter winner, one of the first women to earn a letter at A&M. That led to serving leadership roles at student organizations. And, and you, t- you talked earlier about the big change going on at A&M during the time you know, especially when the seniors are about to graduate in 75 by then. That's another big change, too, I would think, that women were giving leadership roles in student organizations at that time. I went in, as most freshman Aggies should, and and they did. It was called Fish Camp. And so I went in as a a fish camp, and then I decided to apply to be a counselor my sophomore and my junior year. And that's what's great about A&M and the other education is you had to interview and have a background check before they would say, yes, we want you to be a counselor for incoming freshmen at this camp. And at that time, Michael, there were only four camps at that time. And so by the time my senior year came around, in between my junior, well, probably my sophomore and junior year, I was involved with Student Conference on National Affairs I was a delegate. Dr. Carolyn Adair asked me to be a delegate to the West Texas Conference on National Affairs, along with two other people, Bruce Campbell and Phil Robinson. But we met each other at fish camp, and then we kind of grew into being counselors, and then we grew into being delegates, and then I became involved. I was going to become a lawyer. That was my goal, to get my law degree. So I was in the pre-law society. I was president of the pre-law society. By the time my, my freshman year was over with, I had kind of been asked, would you consider to be an officer? You know, you move up at the end of your four years to be president. Um, very involved in voter registration. I still am. 
Um, I believe it was important that students be represented, but also to be registered to vote. They were now 18, if you recall the laws. Um, you could register and be a participant within your county. As a swimmer, doing the hours that I was doing and playing water polo and competing, I was limited in that respect. So I kind of went, okay, I'm going to do fish camp. I'm going to do pre-law society. I'll do Stona and several other committees. So I had to balance all of that. And then my senior year, I interviewed, and it was like being in an interview process for a job to be a director of one of the four fish camps that was coming up my senior year. And I applied, and I was one of the four directors. After college, you remained a leader at Texas A&M as, as part of the alumni. Yes. yes. And that, that's a new thing, too. I will preface this by saying I didn't set out just like to be a trailblazer. I never set out to be in leadership. It was a divine intervention. It was literally what I was called to do. So when Dennis Gearing, who is a Junction boy, if you read about his history at Texas A&M University, became president of the Letterman's Association. I graduated in 78. And now he is going to be president in 1983. And he said, you know, I'd like for you to join me, Texas A&M Letterman Association. You're a three-year letterman. You're an All-American. Why aren't you in the Letterman's Association? And I flat out looked him straight in the eye and I said, Dennis, I can't be a member because the bylaw changes do not allow Texas A&M women who have, who have represented school who are lettermen to be a voting member. And he said... Well, I can change that. I'm going to be president this year, and we can make that as part of our agenda. And he did. Okay, so so that's how you got into the Letterman's Association. Correct. He says, but one stipulation, once we start this process of changing the bylaws, you need to be on my board. I said, okay. So that's where I became the first woman to be on the board of directors for Texas A&M Letterman's Association. I said yes, but I felt it was in my heart and in my soul that it was the right thing to do for the future of the Letterman's Association, as well as women's athletics, that they have an opportunity and have a voice. It's just not a bunch of guys who lettered in football. It, it's those guys who are more in baseball, in track and field, and it's and, and there's so many, you know, softball, baseball, track and field. We all train together. We all played together. You know, it's like, why aren't we being recognized? And so Dennis Gearing was in his board, which I was very honored to be the first. And then we brought on Cindy Goff and Linda Cornelius. I was just passionate about getting things for uh, Texas A&M University, and it was always with that intent was not just for women, it's for the university, because one of my heroes is General Earl Rudder, who had the vision to come back to the university and say, hey, the four cadets is no longer mandatory, and we're going to open it up, what was it, 1965, for women to apply just like anybody else. You don't have to have a relative or know a relative or whatever the requirements were back in the day. 
you can apply like anybody else to become a student at Texas A&M University. So we're 65, and now, Michael, now we're 75. Now we're going into 85. Huge changes across the board in the university. And, of course, Earl Rutter also said if we're going to be an international university that will have worldwide influence, we can't just stay an all-male institution. We cannot stay just where we're only allowing certain individuals to be part of this university and the system. So he, too, was a huge trailblazer for Texas A&M and made it possible for women like myself and young girls who had the opportunity. A lot of different people and a lot of different events that created those opportunities And of course, Title IX played such a huge part of it. And even after you were on the board of the Letterman's Association, there was still more work to be done. 85 was when Lynn Hickey, who would become the woman's athletic director, and a number of things. I can just list another huge uh, amount of responsibility was put on her after K-Don. And of course, the transition came where... I said to the Letterman's Association, where are the women's resumes who are eligible for the Texas A&M Hall of Fame for athletics? So I was tasked to go and work with Lynn Hickey to start putting together resumes to present to the Texas A&M University Athletic Hall of Fame and their criteria in order to be even considered part of our university athletic hall of fame period. And um, I submitted three resumes, and I'm happy to say that the very first one was Linda Cornelius. Her resume was the strongest to be our first woman to be inducted in the athletic hall of fame. The rest of the ladies that came after that that I submitted, they were inducted. And then in the 90s, I was nominated as the first woman swimmer to be inducted in the Texas A&M Hall of Fame. That's amazing. The story arc here is going from not even having an athletic scholarship available when you enrolled, you had the academic scholarship, to then being a three-time All-American and the swim team having more All-Americans than the football team and then to be in the Athletic Hall of Fame. That's from the ground up right there. Correct. But again, when you're a kid, when you're a 17-year-old kid out of high school, you don't have a perspective of what you're doing while you're doing it. No, you don't. And the people sitting at the SEC Women's College Basketball Tournament, I still get goosebumps. Watching this play out after this amount of time, because those swimmers, those 13 swimmers, at least 10 of us were on the benches at a place called G. Raleigh White, where both the volleyball team and the basketball team at Texas A&M had to share the time for practice and for games. And we would be there to root them on. We, it was not uncommon to watch a volleyball practice and then wait for the women's basketball team to come and play a game, and vice versa. And so to see Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee, 
full of people to watch college women's basketball <laughs> and to be on the floor at halftime to be recognized as a Title IX trailblazer from Texas A&M University with Brenda. So many things were going through my mind. Like I said, still get goosebumps talking about it. And I'm sure it's difficult to put into words experiencing that tangible example of the tremendous growth of women's sports. And it took the determination of women on the court, on the golf course, in the pool, on the track, and in the bleachers early on to make that growth happen. And later, it was those women taking those college degrees and opening up new career pathways for women that further represented the change that Title IX brought about. And then in your case, with community involvement, you became the first woman to serve as president of the Texas A&M Letterman's Association. I had been blessed to be president of Texas A&M Letterman's Association in 1990, but I didn't set out to do that. It was just, I was called. People would call me and say, Vicki, would you be interested? Yes. I would just say yes. I knew that's what I needed to do. And I took a little break with my, my wonderful son, and he went everywhere with me. I mean, he was probably the first child in the Letterman's Association. So we changed literally that, hey, now kids are welcome to come in and families are welcome to come in. And I always tell my son, you you started this because you showed up and you were just a good kid. And it became not a club. It became an area that people could gather as a family, have reunions, and that's what it is today with all of these great men who preceded me back when I was just a person who was on campus as a student athlete. And I had that great privilege and, and honor of serving with them on the boards and learning from them and learning how to be tough, okay, because there were those who felt certain ways and that's okay. You learn as a swimmer on a team don't always get along with everybody, but you respect their opinion and you respect what they're trying to do because they too want the best for Texas A&M University. That's a great tie-in, how what you learn in sports, how that helped you on the board in a leadership role. That's what my athletic career helped me. Later on as a professional, the same values that Texas A&M's still professes today, and when you go to out in the workplace, you practice those same values. And I tell this whenever I speak to student-athletes, whatever you're learning now, you'll just practice to a different level when you go in your career. Vicki, it's really like the reasons for Title IX. You lived them. You participated in athletics. You got your education. You became a leader in the workforce. When the Southeastern Conference named two trailblazers from each member's school, you were selected as one of Texas A&M's two trailblazers, along with Brenda Goldsmith-Holcott, who will be part of this series next week. The SEC recognized you on the court during the conference's women's basketball tournament in March of 2022. For the trailblazers group photo, you held up a team picture of the Texas A&M's women's swimming team that you were on. Being first 
first was not, and I just want to emphasize, being first was never my intent. Being involved was natural. It was just natural, Michael. It was just what I needed to do. And to promote swimming along the way, if that came about, yes, sir. And in the photo where the trailblazers are, you know, as a group, you'll see me holding a photo. And that was my team. That was the team that was the first team to win the swimming championship. And so I brought them with me because those ladies were trailblazers too, some of which are passed away. And I wanted them to be part of my day. They were with me. You never do it on your own. You heard that. It seems cliche, you know, a cliche, but it's not. Couldn't have done this without those ladies and eat, sleep, swim, eat, sleep, swim, compete, you know, day in and day out for years. And some I've swam with in age group swimming. (laughs) So some of those ladies I've been with prior to that, you know, that were on the team. So that's why I brought the photo. So much has happened in the past 50 years since Title IX was signed into law. Would you please share your thoughts on what might be if not for Title IX? If not for Title IX, I would not have been able to literally get the education. That was primary goal. The education at Texas A&M University. The added benefit was so many women were interested in collegiate sports and the fact that I was able to do both gave me a great opportunity to do the leadership positions and again, not just at Texas A&M University. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Nine for Title IX series, celebrating 50 years of Title IX. This episode was presented by the Fairfield Inn and Suites, Waco North. Come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, and when you do, book your stay at the Fairfield Inn and Suites, Waco North.